I would encourage you to take your Bibles and turn to the book of 2 Thessalonians chapter 3. This is the next to last message that we'll be preaching in this series. Next week we'll conclude, Lord willing, our study through 1 and 2 Thessalonians as we come to the final benediction there at the end of 2 Thessalonians next week. The week following that, we'll begin a three-week series um, that it's an Advent, a Christmas series. Since hope has been our theme for the whole year, my title for our Advent series is The Thrill of Hope. A weary world rejoices. Okay, we won't sing that. Maybe we'll. But that's the, the title of my series, The Thrill of Hope. And so for three Sundays in a row, we're going to be considering how hope is seen in a manger. Well, again, we're going to be looking at 2 Thessalonians chapter 3 this morning. And as we look in it, I'm going to be preaching in verses 6 through 15 of chapter 3 in a message I've entitled, Dig In, Don't Check Out. Dig In, Don't Check Out. And what's going to happen in this passage we're going to study is Paul's going to confront what seems to be a growing problem in this local church in Thessalonica. It's something that he mentioned just in passing in the first letter we studied back in the spring, but now he spends an extended amount of time touching on this subject. You may have missed it or maybe forgot about it in the first letter when we studied back in the spring because it was one of the instructions he gave towards the end where at the end, if you'll remember, uh, 1 Thessalonians ends with these kind of rapid-fire exhortations in succession. In fact, look at some of them, beginning in verse 16 of that last chapter, 1 Thessalonians. Paul says, Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, give thanks in all circumstances, do not quench the Spirit, do not despise property, prophecies, test everything, hold fast to what is good, abstain from every form of evil. And those are just kind of coming at you so fast you might miss some of them. Well, that whole rapid-fire succession of exhortations that Paul gave to them actually began with this one in verse 14. Look at it. Paul said, We urge you, brothers, admonish the idol. Again, we could have missed it. It's just three words in our English. Admonish the idol. Apparently, there was something that Paul had heard that was happening within the church of Thessalonians of the Thessalonians, that there was this idleness. Idleness means not working, not pursuing with diligence your particular vocation. There was this idleness. And so Paul directs just this short instruction, admonish the idol. Well, what he uses only three words for in 1 Thessalonians, apparently the problem gets much, much worse because I told you, as we've been studying 2 Thessalonians, the heart of this letter is chapter 2, verses 1 through 12. Well, Paul devotes almost as much ink and paper to this issue of idleness in chapter 3 that he does to the issue of their misunderstandings about the return of Jesus and our being gathered together to him. In fact, most scholars believe that this issue of idleness, of quitting your job, not working, not pulling your weight in society, is connected to their misunderstandings about the return of Jesus. So look with me in your Bibles again, chapter 3. We're going to read verses 6 through 15. This is God's holy and errant word. Hear it. Now we command you, brothers, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you keep away from any brother who is walking in idleness and not in accord with the tradition that you receive from us. For you yourselves know how you ought to imitate us, 
because we were not idle when we were with you, nor did we eat anyone's bread without paying for it. But with toil and labor, we worked night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you. It was not because we do not have the right, but to give you in ourselves an example to imitate. For even when we were with you, we would give you this command. If anyone is not willing to work, let him not eat. For we hear that some among you walk in idleness, not busy at work, but busy bodies. Now such persons we command and encourage in the Lord Jesus Christ to do their work quietly and to earn their own living. As for you, brothers, do not grow weary in doing good. If anyone does not obey what we say in this letter, take note of that person and have nothing to do with him, that he may be ashamed. Do not regard him as an enemy, but warn him as a brother. Now, last spring, when we were in 1 Thessalonians, I introduced you to this individual by the name of William Miller. William Miller was a Baptist preacher who uh, led a movement known as the Millerites. William Miller began to be very enamored with eschatology, the study of the end times, so much so that he began to put together systems and processes and, and timelines and charts that indicated that the return of Jesus Christ was going to happen ironclad proof between March 21st, 1843 and March 21st, 1844. Now, William Miller took advantage of the printing press that was really all the rage in that day, and he printed all kinds of pamphlets and newsletters and posters predicting the ironclad proof that Jesus was, in fact, going to return, so much so that he marketed the idea so well, he had over 100,000 followers who sold their possessions, quit their jobs, divested their interests, went to New York, and all gathered together on a mountain waiting for Jesus to come. Well, when that day came, the last day, March 21st, 1844, and Jesus didn't come, well, he did what most false apocalyptic prognosticators do. He changed the date. He said, okay, I was off by six months. And he pushes it forward to October 22nd, 1844. And guess what? In case you didn't know, Jesus didn't return then either. So then what did William Miller do? That day was known as the Great Disappointment. Here's what he did. He didn't add another date. He changed his whole theological system. He said Jesus did return on that date, but he returned spiritually, not personally and physically. He came down for what's known as this, quote, investigative judgment. And from this movement, from William Miller, from the Millerites, was birthed what's known as the Seventh-day Adventists. And they still hold to this date and this spiritual descending of Jesus in an investigative judgment. Now, William Miller was not only mistaken about the nature of the coming of Jesus and the timing of the coming of Jesus, but how we should respond to the promise of the coming of Jesus. They all quit their jobs. They divested their interest in their ownership in things and their businesses, and they went up and waited on a mountain for Jesus to return. This is not the instruction of the New Testament. If Jesus is coming out, we don't check out of the world. We dig in. And that's what we're going to look at this morning from this passage. Dig in, don't check out. And some of these Thessalonians, they did some of the same things that these Millerites did. They checked out of their responsibilities in the world. We see that in verse 11. Look again in your Bibles. For we hear that some among you walk in idleness, 
Not busy at work, but busy bodies. This is the problem Paul is confronting. And the way that Paul tells us to respond to the coming of Jesus is not to check out, to become, but rather to become all the more zealous in the vocations he's placed us in. Vocations is not just your work, not just your job. It's any calling God's given you, whether that's as a father, as a husband, as a church person, in community, and obviously in your work. Friends, even if today was the last day of planet Earth, we should be about our work. We should be business at what God's called us to do in the arena of our homes, our church, and yes, even our jobs. Now, before we get to the specific exhortation Paul gives about work and the importance of work and how we are to remain engaged in work and not be idle, there are some underlying principles I want to present to you that that are important for us to understand these concepts he's going to deal with in the passage. Really two foundational truths that undergird this whole instruction from the Apostle Paul. The first one is this, there is generally an expectation of Christian disciples. There's an expectation that Christian disciples have upon themselves. There are certain ways that we are to live. There are things that Christians are expected to do, and there are things that Christians are expected to not do. There is a Christian lifestyle. There's a Christian way of living. Look again at verse 6. Now, we command you, brothers, in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, that you keep away from any brother who is walking in idleness and not in accord with the tradition that you receive from us. I want you to circle that word tradition on your outline. A lot of times we, we kind of bristle up at that word tradition. We're not traditionalists. Well, we may not be, but Paul uses this word tradition not only once, but twice in this book of Second Thessalonians. If you remember, the first time we came to this word tradition was back in chapter 2, verse 15. There Paul used the word tradition, listen, to talk about a codified, codified doctrine of belief that there's a certain tradition that's been handed down to us as Christians of doctrine, of theology, of truth. And I told you then, as we looked at that section, there are certain things that you must believe in order to be a Christian. You must believe in what we're talking about with the advent of Jesus, that Jesus came to this earth as the Son of God. You must believe in order to be a Christian in the deity of Jesus Christ, that he is God in human flesh. You must believe in his sinless perfection, that he was tempted in every way you and I are tempted, yet without sin. You must believe that Jesus died vicariously, taking upon his own body the punishment for sin. You must believe in order to be a Christian that Jesus was resurrected physically, bodily from the dead. These are things we must believe to be a Christian. This is the tradition of biblical truth that's been handed down to us from the apostolic witness. But here the word is used not to refer to our beliefs, but to refer to our behavior. There's a certain way Christians are expected to live. We've seen this before in the Scripture, that it bears it out. Belief begets behavior, right? What you practice is a consequence of what you profess. We believe certain things, therefore, we should live certain ways. Even the world recognizes this, right? You've probably had someone who would not call themselves a Christian say something to you, well, I thought you were supposed to be a Christian, right? Anybody had that besides me asked of them? Well, what are they saying? There's an expectation. If you profess to be a Christian, there's a certain 
manner of speech, of life, of habit patterns. There's an expectation of Christians. Now, this idea of a Christian way of living, a Christian lifestyle, friends, it's all through the New Testament. In our focal text, Paul says, this is how you should not walk. You should not walk in idleness. That's not in accord with the tradition of a Christian lifestyle. In other places, Paul talks about how we should walk. He loves using this metaphor of walking. Look at Ephesians chapter uh, 4, verse 1, one of the most familiar ones. He says, I, therefore, a prisoner of the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. Again, this is one of Paul's favorite metaphors, the metaphor of walking. Sometimes you can tell a lot about a person by the way they walk, right? You can see somebody who walks with a limp. They've probably got some type of nagging injury. You see somebody who walks with their nose up and their chin up. There's probably a bit of pride in their life. You see a particular person walk with a sachet. Well, there's something thereafter. You see a person who walks very quickly. Well, they've got things to do, places to go, people to see. I've got a lot of things on my plate. You can tell a lot about how somebody is and who somebody is by the way they walk. Paul says, walk in a manner worthy of your calling. There are things that we do and things we don't do because we're Christians. Here's what this means, friends. Our faith in Jesus Christ is not just a component of who we are. It's just not a compartment within our lives. No, our faith in Jesus colors and informs every aspect of our lives. Christianity is not just something we engage in on Sunday morning for an hour, hour and a half. It's what we engage in 24 hours a day, seven days a week. And here's an important aspect of this tradition that Paul's talking about. This way of living, this Christian lifestyle, friend, it does not evolve, it does not morph, it does not change or mutate as society around us changes, morphs, and mutates. It is consistent throughout the generations, throughout the centuries, throughout the millennia. Christians live a certain way. Most of you are familiar with this verse that's in Hebrews chapter 13. Hebrews 13, 8, this is what I call a coffee cup verse. We like to put these on t-shirts and coffee cups and little placards. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. How many of you say amen to that? Jesus doesn't change. He's immutable is the theological term for that. He's the same. But do you know what the context for this declaration of the nature of Christ is? Look what it is. A little bit, a few verses earlier, has to do with the way we live our lives. The, the Bible says, Let marriage be held in honor among all. Let the marriage bed be undefiled, for God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous. Keep your life free from love of money. Be content with what you have. Remember your leaders, those who spoke to you the word of God. Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith, the way they live. Why? Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Here's what the author of Hebrews is saying under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Because Jesus never changes, the way his followers live should never change. It doesn't mutate with culture. It doesn't change with society. It is consistent in our beliefs and in our behaviors. Now, unfortunately, in our modern era, particularly in the last 25 to 30 years, 
There have been those who claim to be Christians, those who profess faith in Jesus, who live unnatural, perverse, unbiblical lifestyles and still say, I'm a Christian. Friends, this does not compute. This is not square. Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. In November of 1928, there was a church that was established in this community, first called West Chattanooga Baptist Church. Four years later, they changed the name of their church to Lookout Valley Baptist Church. Ninety-three years ago, this church was formed. Now, if it were possible to get a time machine and to get some of the first charter members of this church nearly a hundred years ago to come back into this service today at the end of 2021, yes, our hairstyles have changed, our clothing styles have changed, our musical styles and, and preferences have changed, but the way we live our lives should not change. What we believe about Jesus should not change. Whether we go back 100 years, 500 years, 1,000 years, every believer in Jesus is contending for the same gospel delivered to the saints. This is what we believe, and this is how we behave. Now, some may object, but technology is exploding today. We've got, when we've split the atom We've got satellites circling our planet, beaming information to every corner of the globe. Why, Apple just released the iPhone 13. We've got the 5G network. Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And Paul sees here, there is a tradition. There is a lifestyle. There is a manner of walking. And he says, walk in a manner worthy of the calling that you've been called with. So that's the first undergirding foundational truth that informs this instruction about work. There's an expectation for Christians in all areas of our lives. Here's the second undergirding principle. I think what we see here in this passage is an example of church discipline. We see here an example of church discipline. I think that's the best word for it. This is not a treatise on church discipline. This is not a teaching on church discipline, but I think this is a practical application of the principles known as church discipline. Um, we see how the biblical mandate of discipline within a congregation is to be uh, applied to this specific issue of idleness. And we see how Paul demonstrates that in a couple ways. In verse 6, he says this, Now we command you, brothers, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you keep away from any brother who is walking in, an, in idleness. That's pretty harsh language, isn't it? And he repeats almost the same thing in verse 14. If anyone does not obey what we say in this letter, take note of that person and have nothing to do with him. What's he saying? This is a form of censure within the local church. This is a form of sanctioning. It's ostracizing, if you will, shunning someone. Don't have anything to do with this guy. Stay away from him. Keep away from this brother. Now, I want you to note particularly... Paul's use of the word command. I command you. This is a military term of a general to his officers. I command you. Verse 12, he says this again. Now, such person, we command and encourage in the Lord. In other words, this is not a suggestion. Paul is speaking here from his apostolic authority. He's writing Holy Scripture, and he's dictating to this church and to our church a 
command. A command. Now, you may be here this morning, and particularly if you're new to our fellowship here at Lookout Valley Baptist Church, you may not be familiar with this concept that I'm calling church discipline. And the reason this may be foreign to you is because very, very few churches actually practice this, church discipline. Why? Why don't churches practice it? It is a biblical principle. It's a biblical command. Here's why. It's hard work. It's painful. It's difficult. It is uncomfortable. It involves very awkward, uncomfortable conversations. So most people are like, thanks, but no thanks. I'll just skip over this command of Scripture. Church discipline was, in fact, a command given by Jesus himself on how Christians are to deal with sinning brothers and sisters within a local body of believers who persist in unrepentant, ongoing, flagrant sin. And what Jesus does is he gives really a step-by-step instruction on how this is to be carried out. And so I think it would be good for us, it would serve us well at this juncture to just review that. So if you have your Bible, turn over to Matthew chapter 18. Matthew chapter 18, I want you to see it out of your own Bible So, you know, I'm not lying to you. I don't think I've ever lied to you from this pulpit, but I'm not lying to you. This is the word of Jesus Christ. We're going to come back to 2 Thessalonians in a second. But I'm going to begin our reading at verse 15 of Matthew chapter 18 and give some clarifying comments as we walk through Jesus' clear instructions. He says, beginning at verse 1, If your brother or sister sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. Let me stop there. So what's Jesus saying? If you as an individual Christian become aware of someone else within this church, within your circle of relationships, who is also a professing believer in Jesus Christ, you become aware of some sin, some offense, you have a responsibility to first go share it as a prayer request in your small group. No, as a joke. You have as a responsibility first go tattle to the elders. You know what so-and-so's doing? No. Your first responsibility, if you become aware of something in the life of another Christian, is go to that person in private, one-on-one. This is what Jesus says. You go and you tell them the fault alone. What happens? If he listens to you, you've gained your brother. And guess what? End of the matter. You don't bring it up again. You don't talk about it again. You don't need to confront it again. They repent. It's the end of the matter. Now, there's, if there is no repentance when you go by yourself and talk through this issue, then Jesus moves to step two in verse 16. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. So in this second step, this is normally where pastors or other spiritual leaders become involved in the process where this brother or sister who is involved in unconfessed, unrepentant sin is confronted with multiple people who have evidence this is a continuing problem in your life. You are not living and walking in a manner worthy of the calling. Now, the second step of church discipline is normally the longest part. This is not a quick conversation. As we, as our elders, get involved with multiple cases of discipline over the years, there are multiple meetings, multiple conversations. We'll often encourage or instruct the person 
Here's a biblical counselor who can walk with you through dealing with some of these habit patterns and sin patterns that you may have in your life. We want to be restorative in this, and so we do a lot of work to try to help people overcome these sin patterns and these habit patterns. Most of you never hear about these things. They're in the privacy of the seven elders that lead our congregation and shepherd this church. This happens regularly, just so you know. And thanks be to God, it normally never gets past this second step. But then the Apostle Paul, or excuse me, Jesus, gives a third step if it persists. Look at verse 17. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. That's you if you're a member of this church. There has been occasion, and the way this is applied in our particular context here at Lookout Valley Baptist Church is you may hear me say from this pulpit, this Wednesday night is our bi-monthly members meeting. This members meeting is going to be a closed meeting. Now, normally, we invite and encourage visitors, non-members to attend our members meeting to hear all that God's doing in the life of our church. But if I say there's a closed meeting, it's likely because there is a discipline issue that we need to follow the instructions of Jesus, tell it to the church. Now, what does that mean? We name the person, we name the sin, we talk through the processes we've gone through to seek repentance, to seek them to confess this sin and to come into alignment with the, with the good news of the gospel and the word of God. We've painfully walked with this individual through this process, and there has been no repentance. So we're telling the church, and this is what we do, we call the church to prayer. We say, church, let's pray for this person. And we'll have an extended time of prayer right there at that members meeting, praying for this individual. So as time passes, what do we do next? If there's still, and I would say there have been instances where we've called the church to pray for someone who is unrepentant sin that God, by his grace, has moved in their heart to repent. Isn't that glorious? Can we follow the instructions of Jesus? He's faithful to that. But there's also a fourth step. What if he doesn't still repent after you tell it to the church? Here's what Jesus says in the fourth and final step of church discipline. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. But what does that mean? Well, by Jesus saying you're to consider him as a Gentile, as a tax collector, he's saying you consider him to be an unbeliever. He's a pagan. He's a non-Christian. Friends, this is why membership in a local church, we believe, is not only important, but we believe it is biblical. Here's why. If you're a member of Lookout Valley Baptist Church, here's what the membership as a whole, this congregation, is communicating to the world. We affirm the salvation of this individual. Because, look, Troy Walliser is a member of this church. You don't, may not know this, but you all are affirming to the world. We are attesting to the testimony of this person. He's a Christian. He's a believer in Jesus Christ. And if we walk through this lengthy, difficult process of discipline and there's still no repentance, Jesus says the final step is to consider him as a non-believer. Consider him as a non-Christian. You remove him from the membership of the church. Now, some would say, what gives you the right to do that? Who do you think you are? bringing up people's personal problems in front of other people and telling other people about them. What gives you the authority to do that? Here's who. Jesus. 
Jesus gives us that authority. In fact, the next three verses of Matthew 18 are likely very familiar to you, but you've probably heard them quoted out of context. So let's read verse 18 and 19 first. Here's what Jesus says. This is within the context of excommunicating somebody from the fellowship of a local church, considering them as an unbeliever. Verse 18, Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Again, I say to you, if two agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. This is how I've heard these two verses misapplied and misquoted. Oh, you want God to do a miracle in your life? You agree with somebody else, and God's bound to do it. No, the context is church discipline. What's Jesus saying? If your church comes together and you all affirm this is an unrepentant person, what you say on earth, he ain't a Christian, is affirmed in heaven. He's not in the Lamb's book of life. Whoa. That's heavy. And then notice what Jesus says next in verse 20. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there am I among them. We've all heard this one misquoted, right? We've heard a worship leader start a beginning worship service together. Hey, y'all, let's worship together because where Jesus says where two of us are gathered in his name, he's there with us. And I want to raise my hand and say, who are we voting out of the church today? (laughs) Because that's the context. The context of Jesus being among us when we're gathered together in community is this context of dealing with an unrepentant person in the church. This is the basis of authority. Jesus says, when you exercise this difficult, painful process, I am right there with you. Wow. That's heavy. Now back to 2 Thessalonians. It seems this church, with regard to these four steps of discipline, is on what I would say is around step three. Tell it to the church. The reason I say that is because Paul refers to them or him twice as a brother. He's not yet considered him as an unbeliever. He's not yet ostracized him as somebody who is a a, a pagan, a tax collector, a Gentile. And the specific form of discipline that Paul instructs this church to carry out here in step three of the process is to basically sanction or censure this brother. There have been times that our elders or I have said to somebody who is in unrepentant sin, we're receiving communion this Sunday. Do not take of the Lord's table. You are censured from the communion table. This is part of what discipline is. In fact, notice again, verse 6, how he describes it. We've read this, but he says, Now we command you, brothers, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you keep away from any brother who's walking in idleness. Verse 14, If anyone does not obey what we have to say in this letter, take note of that person and have nothing to do with him, that he may be ashamed. Now, here's the bottom line. Don't miss this. Why would we ever practice this painful, uncomfortable process? The goal of church discipline is always restoration and repentance. It's always the goal. The goal of church discipline is not to air somebody's dirty laundry in front of the whole church. The goal of church discipline is not to unduly wield spiritual authority. Ah, I got this authority. No. Man, we weep through these things. It is painful. But we exercise it because the goal is always restoration and repentance. That's exactly what Paul says there. Have nothing to do with him. Why? That he may be ashamed. 
that he may have guilt over his sin, that God may convict him of his sin, which would lead to repentance and restoration. So this is the background information that I want us to have a grasp on before we tackle the issue at hand here in 2 Thessalonians chapter 3. One, there is an expectation of how Christians should live, how they should act based on what they believe. Secondly, this here is an example of church discipline, a censuring or sanctioning of a member of this church who is in ongoing unrepentant sin, which leads to the third thing, and that is this. There's an exhortation to vocational diligence. This section is really Paul exhorting the church members there to be diligent in the vocations where God has placed them. So the problem being addressed is there's an unwillingness of some people in this church to work. And so we can infer what that means is they're mooching off other people in the church. They're sponging off maybe wealthy individuals who are members of the church, philanthropists who have extra money. Instead of working, they're living off other people's resources. Again, verse 11, for we hear that some among you walk in idleness. Now this word idleness uh, broadly means to be unruly, but, uh, it's, but here it applies particularly to professing Christians not fulfilling their obligations. They're not working hard to provide for their own needs. Like I mentioned earlier, most scholars believe that this idleness that was taking place in this church was based upon their false interpretations of the return of Jesus Christ. This is rooted in bad eschatology, which is exactly what happened with the Millerites in the mid-1800s. Their selling of their possessions was rooted in bad theology. It's also possible that these um, individuals who were idle, who were not working, saw themselves really as more spiritual, saw themselves as really these thoughtful theologians who really, you grunts go out there and work, we're the real deep-minded people that think about the profound truths of God, right? So there may have been something of this theological snobbery. The reason I say that is because Paul uses this kind of wordplay. They're not busy at work, but they're busy bodies. In other words, instead of spending 40, 50, 60 hours a week at a job, they're engaging in all of your lives, trying to tell you how to live your lives and kind of making fun of your emphasis on vocation, They have all this free time because they're not going to work. Now, three truths about work, three truths about our vocation that I want us to see that have great application to us here 2,000 years later. First, number one, there is the mandate to work. Paul gives here, for Christians, the mandate to work. He says, now such persons we command and encourage in the Lord Jesus Christ to do their work quietly and to earn their own living. Getting up, getting dressed, going to work is not just a suggestion. It's not just an option. It is a command of the Bible, Christian. We are to be busy at work. We're to do our jobs. Later in verse 14, he says, if anyone does not obey what we say in this letter, take note of this person. This is a command. This is a mandate. Christians are expected to pursue vocational excellence. This is the Christian attitude towards work. Now contrast that with the world's attitude towards work. What the world thinks about work. We can see this in some of the bumper stickers you've no doubt seen on the back of vehicles. Here's one I know all of us have seen. I owe, I owe, so off to work I go. Right? The the dwarfs, is that who sang that song? What, What is this bumper sticker communicating? Go back. 
This bumper sticker is communicating, I owe, I owe, so off to work I go. In other words, I'm living outside my means to enjoy the hobbies and special trips and things that I can't really afford to do, so I'm obligated to go to work just to pay for all this stuff. No, this is not the Christian's attitude towards work. We embrace our vocation. We embrace our jobs. Here's another one. You may have seen this one. Work fascinates me. I could sit and watch it for hours. (laughs) I know many of you have seen these. I'd rather be fishing, or I'd rather be playing golf, or I'd rather be playing guitar, right? I don't have that one, but uh, I could have that one. There's nothing wrong with wholesome hobbies, but when those things are maximized and our responsibility to work is minimized, that's the problem. We do as little as possible to try to get away with it. The Bible's portrayal of work is it's something that should be embraced. In fact, even the word vocation, it comes from a Latin word, vocatio, which means our calling. So you have a calling, not just in your family, not just in your church, not just in your community, but in your work. It's our vocation. It's what we're called to do for God's purposes. In fact, work was part of God's original design. Before sin entered the picture, before Eve entered the picture, What was the instruction God gave to Adam? Look at Genesis 2.15. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to do what? To work it and keep it. Work was happening in the Garden of Eden, in that paradise, in that sinless perfection. He was to dig in, to get his fingers and his hands dirty in the soil of work. And work will be a part of the eternal kingdom when Jesus returns. He says, you're faithful in a few things here on this earth. I'll make you ruler over many things in heaven. We're going to have jobs in heaven. I don't know what that's going to be like or what that's going to look like, but we'll have work to do, which is great. It's not going to be boring sitting on a cloud playing a harp. We're going to have responsibilities. Therefore, here's what you need to understand. Work is righteous. Work is good. Work is honorable. Work is worship. Here's the second thing from this passage about work that Paul gives us. Number two, the model of work. Paul presents himself as a model, as an example of what a hardworking person looked like. Look again at verse 7, 8, and 9. He says, For you yourselves know how you ought to imitate us, because we were not idle when we were with you, nor did we eat anyone's bread without paying for it, but with toil and labor we work night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you. It was not because we do not have that right, but to give you in ourselves an example to imitate. Now, Paul is something of a special case. One, he's an apostle. Two, he's unmarried and has no children. He doesn't have a wife or kids to take care of. But he has a couple of goals in mind here. One, I believe he's telling them, we didn't work when we were there among you because he wants to separate himself from the religious charlatans of his day and the religious charlatans of our day. There are people who use religion to get rich. I don't know if you believe that or not, but it's true. Just turn on TBN, you'll find them. He said, I'm not one of those people. I'm not using spiritual truth to line my pockets, to try to get rich. Rich Now, Paul didn't take money from this church in Thessalonica, at least here he didn't, but in some cases he did take money from churches. 
as a means of support for his preaching of the gospel. In fact, Paul, more than anybody else in the New Testament, actually gives the credence for paying pastors. And I'm not saying this as being self-serving, but this is what Paul says regarding the church's responsibility for those who preach the gospel to them. Here's one example. In 1 Corinthians 9, Paul says this, For it is written in the law of Moses, You shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain. Here's what that principle means. You shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain. It means that whenever you would have a big ox tied to this heavy millstone that he would pull in a circle, and that millstone would crunch the the grain husks, and then the husk would be separated from the, the kernels of grain, you're not to muzzle that ox when he's walking in that circle, laboring, pulling that millstone. Why? So he can go down, and some of the grain he separates, he can actually eat it, right? That's what that means. He's to get his food from his labor. Now look how Paul applies that to the church. In the same way, the Lord commanded that those who proclaim the gospel should get their living by the gospel. This is the principle for paying pastors. But even though that is a biblical right, and Paul says, I've got that right, he said, when I was with you in Thessalonica, I did not claim that right. I worked my own job, I earned my own way so that I could give you an example to follow. Friends, in the same way, 2,000 years later in the church today, church, listen, you have a responsibility to have ministers who are not lazy. You have a responsibility to have pastors who work hard. And we have a work day in the church. The ministers should be the first ones who show up and the last ones to leave. We're not here, and I'm saying this as the head minister. We're not here to freeload off of you. When we go to lunch, I'm paying for your lunch. You ain't paying for mine, all right? You give me a salary, that enables me to buy things. We're not here to freeload off people, to get other people to buy things for us, send us on trips, as great as those things may be. We should be diligent workers if we're in the ministry. And so like Paul, pastors and ministers should model for their people what hard work looks like, what diligent work looks like. But that leads to the third truth about work that Paul displays here, and that is, number three, the morality of work. He says in verse 10, For even when we were with you, we would give you this command. If anyone is not willing to work, let him not eat. There's a moral implication to work. We should be able to see the connection between the work of our hands or the work of our brains and the food in our belly. Right? There there should be a connection there. Hunger is a great motivator for people to work. I'm hungry. Go to work. If you're not willing to work, then you don't eat. Of course, this does not include those who are handicapped or those who are disabled or those who don't have the capacity to work. We as Christians have an obligation, a responsibility to come along those people who are disabled in those ways and to assist and to help. Uh, But this is speaking to able-bodied people. And he's telling the church in Thessalonica, People are able to work, and they're not working. Well, you don't give them any food to eat. Let them go get a job. Pay for their food. In fact, Paul put it this way in Ephesians chapter 4. He said, Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands, so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Friends, we labor to make money so that we could provide for our own individual needs, the shelter, food, clothing. But look why else we labor diligently, Christian. 
so that we can have something to share with anybody in need. There's all kinds of gospel initiatives that we ought to be a part of financially. We ought to give to Choices Pregnancy Center here in Chattanooga, right? We ought to help people who are pursuing adoption that is incredibly expensive and they want to adopt a child. They ought to have no expenses in this church with regard to adopting a child. We ought to come alongside people who are in a difficult situation or hard circumstances. We ought to spend money to advance the gospel to the nations, supporting missionaries as they go on mission to take the gospel to the ends of the earth. This is why we work hard. We meet our own personal needs, live as simply as we can, then we give it away to help other people. But at the end of the day, we work diligently as unto the Lord because it gives God glory. And God is all about his glory. I'll close what for some may be a difficult message, but I'll close with these two passages as we conclude. Colossians 3.23, Paul says, Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men. We're working for God. And finally, 1 Corinthians 10.31, Whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. When it comes to work, the overwhelming instruction from Scripture is don't check out. Dig in. Get to work. And that leads to my last thought. As we resolve to work as unto the Lord, God will multiply the results of that work for the good of others and the glory of his name. Let's go to him in prayer.